Isaiah 49, look at verse 3. And he said to me, Isaiah 49, 3, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward with my God. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Skip over to verse 14 of the same chapter. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And here's the response of God to Israel. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. The Lord has a special love for the nation of Israel. There are many verses that I could show you. That's one of many. And God in his sovereignty, if you turn to the book of Daniel, which is going to be a little bit to your right, um, has chosen this little nation, this what's been called a sliver of land in the Middle East. The nation has blossomed again in some of our lifetimes. They've recaptured Jerusalem. I mentioned the moving of the U.S. Embassy to uh, Israel's eternal capital. And here we are now tonight in the book of Daniel looking at what we've talked about as a very prophetic book. It's a practical book, many practical lessons about how to live our lives, how to stand strong, but it's also a prophetic book. In Daniel 11.32, which has become a favorite Bible verse for some of you who are out there, it says these words, just to look ahead for a moment. And by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. Daniel eleven thirty two 32, part B. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. When you know God... There is a one-to-one correspondence between knowing God and taking action. The two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they go hand in hand. To know God is to act. To know God is to desire to do His will. Jesus, who was in perfect communion with the Father, said, I always do those things that, remember, please my Father. To know God is to do God's will. To have spiritual gifts, Romans chapter 12, whether it's the gift of teaching, exhortation, mercy, uh, giving, etc., is to engage that gift. If you have a gift of exhortation, if you have a gift of teaching, if you have a gift of administration, if you have a gift of worship leading, if you have a gift of teaching children, whatever your gift may be, to know God is to act. Now, you don't act for salvation, you act because of salvation. In other words, what you do is always an outgrowth of who you know and who you are. 
And Daniel 11.32 depicts a group of people in history's past, in history past, who knew their God and took action. Namely, they were the Maccabeans, which is kind of in the intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew. And some of you know about that period, but that's where the holiday Hanukkah comes from, and we'll get to that in a moment. But there's a modern application which I want to make to you tonight, and it is this, and this is something I've said to myself recently. I don't want my Christian life to be defined by where I sit in a church building or how much time I've preached from a pulpit. I do believe that the pulpit ministry that God has given to me is extremely important. But I don't want that to solely define my Christianity. You all know what I'm talking about? I don't want just sermons I hear or time I spend in a church building to define what I have done from the, for the Lord. Uh, there's a passage in the book of Acts where they're ministering to the Lord, fasting and praying, Acts 13. And as they minister to the Lord, it's not so much about them saying, Lord, we need, need this from you, we need that from you. As they are ministering to the Lord, another word for worship, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. When you are worshiping the Lord, when you're ministering to the Lord, when you're spending time with the one who bought you with a price, when you are saying to the Lord, when you've gotten through your laundry list and maybe you're tired of praying always about what you need from God, maybe it's time for us to switch our prayers a little bit. And instead of saying, Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, how about we say, Lord, I want to stand for you. How about we decide that it's time that we took some action. That we as the church got off of the bench collectively and got into the game. Everybody know what I'm talking about? There's a modern application to all of these verses that we see. Yes, a historical context that cannot be ignored. But when we look at these verses and when we do part B of chapter 11, we're going to see that there's going to be an end time scenario. There's going to be a generation that's going to need to stand tall in the time of the Antichrist. But even now, should we not be that generation, we still need to stand tall. We still need to know our God and take action. The two go together. Can I ask you tonight, what are you doing with your faith? Are you saying, Lord, because I know you, and because I have come to know the power of your resurrection, and even the fellowship of your sufferings, I do want to live my faith. I simply don't want to be a person who just receives and hears sermon after sermon without doing something. I think that's what Pastor Chris was getting at when he spoke to us last time. And this is uh, part and parcel of what's before us. The people who know their God shall be strong and they shall carry out great exploits. Daniel lived approximately 620 B.C. to 530 B.C., but the predictions here are so incredible that liberal scholarship has to redate the book because they don't believe that the Bible is supernatural. So they cannot handle the fact that you have 135 prophecies fulfilled in 35 verses. How is that possible? It's only possible if the Bible is divine, if the Bible is from God. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. 
Jesus appealed to the book of Daniel. He said Daniel was a prophet. The liberal scholars want to tell you that Daniel was a liar. See, this is what's happening, folks. If Daniel did not write during his lifetime, when he is claiming to be there, when he's claiming to be the author of the book of Daniel, then the liberal scholars are no less saying that Daniel's a liar, and by extension, they're accusing Jesus of being a liar, because Jesus said Daniel's a prophet. You, do you understand what I'm saying? This is what's going on in our world. There's even a battle for the Bible. Daniel 11, from a big picture standpoint, was written to prepare God's people, Israel, for two great crises to come, if you're a note-taker. The first crisis would come at the hands of Antiochus Epiphanes, about 170 B.C. This is the major painting with big strokes now. The second great crisis would come at the hands of a man we call the Antichrist. Daniel chapters, chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, get to Antiochus Epiphanes. I've mentioned him in the past. I'll talk about him a little bit more. The second great crisis is yet to our future at the hands of an Antichrist figure, which is Daniel 11.36 and into chapter 12. We've seen this before in the book of Daniel. Sweeping prophecies from the time of Daniel to kingdoms that would be after him from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, going all the way to the return of Jesus Christ. For example, Daniel 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel 7, which depicts the second coming of Jesus Christ are two examples. So there's precedent in the book of Daniel for prophecy that's immediately in Daniel's lifetime, in the coming world powers moving down to Rome, and all the way up through history back again in our calendars to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rock made without hands that would smash the statue as we saw in Daniel chapter 2. So this is a prophecy that will take us through much of world history. Here's the question that is before the people of God. How are we to be strong in whatever generation we find ourselves? Whether you're a Daniel in Babylon, whether you're Hananiah or Mishael or Azariah in Babylon, whether you li lived in first century Israel when Rome was dominating, whether you lived in the 500s or the 1000s or during the Crusades or during the Protestant Reformation or during the uh, early years of uh, American history or up until our time. The question is going to become simply this. Did you know your God and did you take some action? Did you do what you could do in your lifetime? That's the question that I'm asking myself. That's a question I'm asking the church tonight. The people that know their God will take action. One purpose of prophecy, outside of the fact that it shows that the Bible is divine, is prophecy is for preparation. You might want to write that down. Prophecy prepares the people of God. Jesus said, you know how to read the signs of the sky, but you don't know the signs of the times. You haven't read the writing that's on the wall. Predictive prophecy. Jesus said to the apostles in Matthew 24, Behold, I've told you in advance. When you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then get out of the house. Loose translation. Flee to the mountains. Don't go back and get your jacket. 
Because the days of vengeance are here. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Luke 21, Jesus says, look, I told you in advance. So the aspect of prophecy that I'd like to highlight tonight is it proves that God is God, no doubt, because God challenges the false gods. Tell us what's going to happen in the future if you're a true God. We know that they're false. The idols are nothing. But there is something else, and maybe it's not something we think about. Prophecy is supposed to prepare you for the times in which you live. And if the people of Israel studied Daniel 11, who would live after Daniel's time, they would know exactly what was going to be happening all the way to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. How would they know? Because there's 135 fulfilled prophecies in 35 verses. So if you began to study your Bible at this time, outside of the scrolls of Jeremiah, which Daniel did have, you would be able to see what was going on. And simply what was going on is what's always been going on, the conflict of the ages with Israel right at the center. So here is verse 1. <laughs> with all of that being preamble. And there was much more I could have said. But I don't want the snail to show up at my door. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. At the end of uh, chapter 10, the angel says to Daniel, Do you understand, verse 20, why I came to you? But I shall now return and fight against the prince of Persia. We talked about that being a demonic power around the return of the captives to Israel released by the Persian king. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the, in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces, except, would you notice, Michael, your prince. Now we know that's Michael the archangel. Michael's called your prince, or the prince of Israel. You have a prince of Greece at the end of verse 20, a prince of Persia in the middle of verse 20, and Michael, your prince, which some have identified as the restrainer, as we'll get into a little bit more of this as we study. But Michael, the archangel, has a special relationship with Israel. He is called Israel's prince. Michael, your prince. He will be mentioned in Daniel chapter 12, in verse 1. Take a peek. Now at that time, Michael... The great prince, Daniel 12, 1, who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. I'll describe that to you when we get there, what that means. But notice Michael is mentioned again in relation to Israel as a great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Why was there spiritual warfare around Israel at this time? And why has there been spiritual warfare throughout history? We talked about how the Messiah was coming from Israel. That's obviously a very important reason. But we talked about we're at the end of the 70-year captivity and some of the people of Israel are returning back to the land to attempt to what? To rebuild the city and the temple. And so the Persian leader or the king would be responsible for releasing the captives back. And remember, as they went back, there was a week showing only about 50,000 Jews returned to the land. If you're with us for that study, and they... Uh, the peoples of the land were subverting their work and uh, going against them and so forth. They needed strength and encouragement. 
And so when verse 1 says, I arose to be an encouragement and protection for him, it would seem that this angel is working in tandem with Michael around Darius the Mede. Uh, many believe that that Cyrus, the Persian right there, could be interchangeable titles there. But I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Now that's the first year of Darius the Mede. If you go back to uh, chapter 10, verse 1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that many believe that's the same person, just different titles given to him. A message was revealed to Daniel, and we talked about how this was all around the return of the captives to uh, back to the Holy Land. And so that's what's going on. That's the, the, um, the spiritual warfare around those. I had to go help Michael is the idea. Two years before the degree was, decree was given for the people to return to the land, Michael was involved in this. And Darius I did lift the restrictions that had been placed on the rebuilding of the temple. He told them to proceed, and so that's what we have going on. I'm going to give you a time note as we move into verse 2. Chapter 11, Daniel, verse 2. We have an overview of history leading to the first crisis. Now, don't be afraid, time-wise, we won't go into all the details. We're going to kind of fly over this a little bit, but I'm going to give you a few examples here. But here, in verses 2 through 20, we have a period of 355 years. You can safely jot this down. Moving from 530 B.C., to 175 B.C. Verses 2 through 20 cover 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. or from Cyrus to Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay? That's what we're dealing with. Verses 2 through 20. And now, I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. First, we're going to look at some Persian kings. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them, as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. Now, I tell you the truth, this is prophecy, three more kings are, noted in your Bible, going to arise in Persia. There are yet future to this moment that Daniel is living. And so, they are future kings. This is part of the prophecy that's going on. And as soon as uh, he becomes, the fourth becomes strong through his riches, he will rouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So you can see the, the prophecies begin in rapid fire. Now, who are these three more kings? Well, secular history tells us who they were. Cam, Cam, Cambyses was the son of Cyrus. Uh, he was the first. Then there was a second named Pseudo-Smerdis. He reigned in 522 B.C., he was a phony, but he looked like his brother, so some believe that he was the genuine article. And then there was Darius Hystaspes. If, you, uh, if any of you have the uh, MacArthur Study Bible and you want to work through the details of this, he's done a good job laying out the history. Those were the three kings moving from this time to 486 B.C. But the fourth king is the focus of verse 2. Then there will be a fourth who will gain far more riches than all of them. And the fourth king is Ahasuerus, or he's known as Xerxes. Now, if you put your thinking cap on for a second, you might remember that Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is the king at the time of the book of Esther. And 
He has incredible riches. In fact, the book of Esther opens up with him giving a world's fair that I think lasted some six months. And what Persian kings would do is they would invite uh, people around, the bigwigs and so forth. And in this case, they would do something to show off their wealth and their power. Well, the book of Esther opens this way, and the king of that time is a king named Xerxes. He has a six-month world's fair to display, display his incredible wealth. He is the fourth king mentioned in this verse in Daniel. And so he, remember, deposed Queen Vashti, if you are a VeggieTale fan, because she wouldn't make him a sandwich. Um, that's not actually what happened as far as we know. But she would not display her beauty in front of his buddies. And some believe that he wanted her to be lewd in front of them in some respect. She refused. Queen Vashti refused. She was deposed. And there was a search for a new queen. And the queen that arose in that time was a woman named Esther. And Esther became a savior figure, if you will, of her people. Because at that time, a plot was hatched by a man named Haman. Or you may know him if you lived in the 70s as, hey man. But anyway, so, <laughs> so Haman hatched this plot. And he got the king to sign a decree to eliminate the people of Israel, right? And he uh, was mad at Mordecai the uncle of Esther, and he wanted to hang him on the gallows, but the gallows that he made to hang uh, Mordecai became his own death instrument, and he was hung on the gallows. But his plot was to destroy the people of Israel, and Esther had to make a decision. And Uncle Mordecai said, if you don't stand, God will bring deliverance for the Jews in some other way or through somebody else. But perhaps you've come into the kingdom." For such a time as this. And Esther stood tall. And she called for a, a three-day period, I believe, of prayer and fasting. Don't eat anything. Pray for me that the king will raise the scepter and allow me to approach him and to reveal the plot. And that is the feast that the Jews now celebrate called the Feast of Purim. They celebrate Esther's stand and another deliverance of their nation. Well, Ahasuerus or Xerxes I, king of Persia, reigned from 485 BC to 464. And when Haman plotted to destroy Mordecai, his family, and all the Jews in the Persian Empire, God used Esther. As soon as he became strong through his riches, he would arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. After three years of battle, Xerxes this king in the book of Esther was defeated by the Greeks in the crucial battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. Xerxes reigned until he was assassinated by the chief of the palace guards in 465. Uh, his second son, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, ruled in his place. If Xerxes was Artaxerxes' father, who was his mother? It may well be that it was Esther. We know that she had some influence in the court, when Nehemiah asked to go and return and rebuild the, uh, the city walls in the book of Nehemiah, you can see that in chapter 2, chapter 1, chapter 2. But here's what happens, just to give you the quick overview. Persia dominated the world from this time for about the next 150 years. There were other kings during this time, but they're not mentioned here. 
There were other invasions and attempts at defeating the Greeks, but it stuck in the Greek minds. And even though Persia dominated the world, according to Daniel 2 in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel 7, we see the leopard and the shaggy goat in uh, chapter 7 and 8 of Daniel representing Greece, we do have another uh, reference to the, the, to the Greeks, and here's what, where it is. Then a mighty king, verse 3, will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. Now the mighty king of Daniel 11.3 is the first king of Daniel 8.21. I think all scholars agree that this is Alexander the Great. And in the Greek mind, they were angry with the Persians because the Persians kept trying to attack them and to war with them. And so Alexander the Great became the tool for the Greeks to get vengeance on the Persians. And so here's what happened. Alexander the Great took over. He launched an attack against Persia in 334 B.C. By 332, he had essentially subdued the Persian Empire. And so this man was born, Alexander, in 356 B.C. He ascended the Macedonian throne in 336 advised by his teacher Aristotle that he could rule the world if he could make people adopt the Greek culture. Alexander extended his empire east from Greece around the Mediterranean Sea to Egypt, then to the borders of India. He died in Babylon in 323 B.C. at the age of 33 with a very tired army in a drinking binge where he did something like this. <laughs> There's no more kingdoms to conquer. <laughs> what am I going to do now? I'm 33. I guess i got to retire or something. It wouldn't be bad to retire at 33, would it? But Alexander was a, a military genius, a fighting machine. He had gotten retribution for the Grecian Empire, but he was a, a bit of a mess in other ways. There are people who claim that the book of Daniel had to be written later, but... Interestingly enough, Flavius Josephus records an incident during the time of Alexander the Great, which the, supports the early authorship of Daniel. When Alexander's invasion rate reached the Near East, Jadua, the high priest, went out to meet Alexander and showed him a copy of the book of Daniel. This is recorded by Josephus, a historian from the uh, first century, in which Alexander was clearly mentioned. High priest shows Alexander the, the book, Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he entered the city peaceably and worshipped in the temple. Close quote. That means that if Alexander saw his name in the book of Daniel in the 300s, then the book of Daniel couldn't have been written in 150, and it has to be authentic, and these prophecies are true, and we know they are even without this historic incident, but it did occur. But as soon as he has arisen, Alexander, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled toward the four points of the compass, though not his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he, he wielded. For his sovereignty or his kingdom will be uprooted and given to others besides them. Now keep in mind, these events are removed some 200 years from Daniel's life. He is getting information about people who haven't lived yet. That's prophecy. God knows history in advance. 
And that's why liberal scholars say there's no way he could know this stuff. How could he write these details? How could he know that Alexander would die and not one of his heirs would take the throne because Alexander died at a young age, his family was left unprotected. I could give you a bunch of details, but all of his descendants were killed and not one of them was able to take the throne. And so it was parceled out to his four generals in the four different compass points. This is what, exactly what occurred in secular history was prophesied by the Bible before it ever occurred. What you're holding in your hand, if you're holding a physical Bible tonight, is the Word of God. And Daniel 11 is an amazing chapter. And I can't do it all the justice uh, for if I gave you all the details, we'd be here for weeks. But here's, here's what it basically says, that this would be split up. It would par be parceled out to his generals. And here's what happened. It went to Antipater, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Um, for our purposes, we focus on the Ptolemaic Empire, which was Egypt, North Africa, and Arabia, and the Seleucus Empire, which was Syria and Babylonia. But for our purposes, just think of Israel in the center, Syria to the north, just as it is today, and Egypt to the south. Remember, when you're studying your Bible, Israel is always at the center of all geography. So when it says the king of the north or the king of the south, it's moving from the point of Israel to the rest of the world. Just like we would consider maybe America the center, and we would say Canada's to our north and Mexico's to our south, because from our vantage point, we live here. So we could say America's at the center for us. Well, in the Bible, Israel's at the center. So the king of the north and the king of the south are always from the vantage point of Israel. And this is, of course, what God would consider as well. And so some of the kingdoms were strong and some were weak, but the two strongest were the north and the south. The king of the south will grow strong, verse 5, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him, obtain dominion. His dominion will be great, a great dominion indeed. South is Egypt, or what's called the Ptolemaic Empire. Ptolemaic starts with a P, and the Ptolemies would be P-T-O-L-O-M-I-E-S, the Ptolemies. And then the Seleucid dynasty is to the north. So if you think of the S, Seleucid is Syria. You got north and south from Israel. That's basically what's going on, looking from the land of Israel. So one of the Ptolemies' generals in 316 B.C. was Seleucus. He became even stronger than Ptolemy Lagos, returned to Babylon to establish his own kingdom, which became the kingdom of the north, or Syria. South and north, from Israel being in the middle, here's Ezekiel 5.5. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem, Ezekiel 5.5. I have set her at the center of the nations, with lands around her. To God, Israel is the center. And by the way, to God, Israel always will be the center. Israel is the apple of his eye. And even though right now Israel is largely secular and atheistic or agnostic, their eyes are going to be opened again and God is going to work again in the land. Look at verse 6. After some years they will form an alliance. 
the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement or make an agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor, and I'm going to give you one example of how these prophecies work, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those brought her, who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. And everybody said, say what? <laughs> Sometimes when these areas were warring, they would try to make an alliance by the king giving her his daughter to the other king. Kind of a, uh, an offer of peace. Let's sit down at the table. Maybe we can get along kind of thing. But here's what you have to see from the standpoint of Israel. When the north and south were warring with each other, who was always in the middle? <laughs> Israel. And when someone lost, let's say that the Syrian king came down to battle Egypt, and let's say that uh, he lost, and uh, let's say that he was walking away and he got beat up, he would have to pass through a place called Jerusalem. And since Israel was not really a warring nation, and oftentimes they were relatively weak in the sense of their armies and so forth, the king would come through there and he would take his aggression out on Israel. And Israel always found herself between a rock and a hard place. And sometimes she would try to figure out who to ally herself with. So sometimes she would make an alliance with Egypt. Sometimes she would make an alliance with Syria or Assyria to try to find a way to survive. She became the proverbial punching bag in the Middle East. But not because she was really doing anything wrong, more because of her geographic location being unfortunate. Now, you can say, well, it was God's plan all along, and it was for Israel to be here, but this is what was happening in world history. And so Israel didn't know, it seemed like they were getting it coming and going. Someone was always mad at them. Someone was always taking their aggression out on the little land of Israel. And so, uh, in, in these verses, basically what happens is to ease the tension, an alliance was made, years of hostility between these kingdoms. So Bernice, the daughter of Egypt's Ptolemy, the second Philadelphus, uh, married Syria's king Antiochus II, Phaos. The latter part of the verse refers to the political advantage or a political marriage they hoped it would produce. Antiochus divorced his wife to marry Bernice, after Antiochus put his first wife, Laodis, away, he sent, uh, sent her sons to Ephesus in Asia Minor, but Bernice did not retain her position of power, as the verse says, as queen. Antiochus II grew tired of her. After her son was born, he went to Ephesus to live with Laodice, but there was hatred and friction. Later, that divorced wife murdered, murdered Bernice, her baby son, and even Antiochus by poisoning him or them. Thus she brought her own son, Seleucus II, Callinicus, to the throne. This is kind of how it, it goes. The details of the verses are borne out by secular history. And here's how the prophecy works. Now I'm not going to get into all the, the details, but verses 5 through 20, write this down, cover almost 200 years of wars between these bordering powers, between the king of the north and the king of the south. Verses 5 through 20 covering about 200 years of wars between these empires. How could Daniel have this information? Only if it was from a supernatural source. And so, um, 
If you go, go ahead and scroll down with me. Um, let's go to verse 15. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege mound, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even the choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases. No one will be able to withstand him, he, and he will also stay for a time in the, what's your Bible say? The beautiful land or the glorious land with destruction in his hand. Here's an example of how in between these warring factions, Israel was called the glorious land or the holy land or the beautiful land, but oftentimes would be in the middle of these wars. And on and on went the battle. And so here's something that happens with this latter Antiochus. Go to verse 19. He will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, or years, the NIV has, he will be shattered, though neither in anger nor in battle. Uh, basically what happened is the, as the time went on and the, and the forces fought back and forth, up and down, Rome began to rise as a world power. And Rome began, began to get stronger and become involved. Now part two of the prophecy is about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. We're going to try to move quickly. He is the eighth Seleucid king. Now everybody take a deep breath for a second. Now, you know why I told the joke about the snail at the door? Some of you, some of you are feeling it. <laughs> but anyway, here we go. Now, part two of the prophecy about Antiochus Epiphany, he, Epiphanes, he's a type of a coming Antichrist, which we'll deal with next time. But here's what happens. In his place, in the place of one of these kings, a despicable person will arise. This is Antiochus on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. He stole it by intrigue. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now this prophecy covers a 12-year period of time from 175 B.C. to 163 B.C. Daniel wrote in the mid-500s. He's talking about a person that would live some 400 years after his time. And he's giving details about the man. He's telling Israel, here's what's going to happen. See, Daniel may have thought, 70 years of captivity, we're going back to the promised land, everything's going to be great, right? Wrong. In fact, the people of Israel are going to run into persecution, oppression, war, almost being stamped out. Throughout all history, until the return of the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, the ultimate king. See, what Daniel's being told in the prophecy as he prayed over his people, as he had on his heart what's going to happen to my people, is that throughout the centuries of time, Israel is going to continue to be the world's punching bag. Now, if you were Daniel, you'd have to be overwhelmed with that. If you had prayed about something regarding your own nation or your own family, and let's say it was revealed that there's going to be difficulty and, and struggle until the return of Jesus Christ. That would be a bit disheartening. It's the truth, but this is what Daniel's getting. And so Antiochus Epiphanes arises. 
By the way, he, his name means God manifest. When he would introduce himself, he would say, Hello, I'm God manifest. Apparently he didn't have a problem with his own, you know, uh, uh, opinion of himself. But he, the Jews renamed him Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. He thought he was a god. The Jews thought he was a nut. And by the way, anybody who introduces himself as God manifest, I would quickly categorize as a nut job. Right? I think I would say, he's a madman. Because that's pretty much, when we've had people over history, even in our own generation, like David Koresh and others, or Jonestown, claim that they were God, we know one thing's happened. They are cuckoo. And this is who this man was. Antiochus IV, the madman. He thought he was God manifest. He seized power through intrigue. He stole the throne. And the overflowing forces will be flooded away, 22, before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. Egypt's armies were swept away by Antiochus. Antiochus is invading forces as by a flood. And so he made alliances. He, he tried to tell people he was friendly. I'm, I'm a good guy. In a time of tranquility, 24, he will enter the richest parts of the realm. He will accomplish what his fathers never did. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. He will devise schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army, so the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be divided against him. Uh, Look at verse 27. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil. They will speak lies to each other at the same table. They will say, hey, let's come to the table, but it will be all about lies, just like every treaty that's ever been signed in the history of man. Treaties are not even worth the piece of paper they're written on. One thing we have in common about treaties is that they're always broken. And so they came to the table. Yeah, but... There was nothing good that was going to come out of that. And so, basically what he did was, he would loot whatever he could. He would seize every opportunity he could. He would plunder whatever temple he could. And then he would go through the streets, and he would throw the gold to his people, and he would say, I am your Savior. I am your God. And the people, history says that Antiochus used to love when he would throw the money on the ground and people would be trying to pick it up as quickly as they could, just like in the Batman movie with the Joker. How many of you remember that? The Joker, oh, this, this is dating me. Remember the original Batman movie? The, the Joker, who was played by, who was it? Jack Nicholson. Man, he was, anyway. And, and, what am I doing? Hey, I, I'm your savior. Where's Batman? At home, washing his tights. (laughs) And he threw the money out with the music playing. And there's the people. Oh, oh, oh yeah, the Joker's our savior. Do you know there's historical precedent that that's what Antiochus did? He would loot temples and he would throw the money on the ground and he would laugh as the people scattered and tried to get the money. And he tried to be the savior of the people. And he went down to Egypt. And he... He tried to finish the job that his 
predecessors couldn't. And Rome opposed him. Look at this, 30. For ships of Kittim or Cyprus, this is the Roman fleet, prophesied in the book of Daniel, will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at what? At the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Here's what happened. He went down to finish the job in Egypt once for all. And the Roman forces said, you're not going to do that. People are sick of you. They're sick of what you do. And if you try to do anything more, you're going to face us. And the Roman general drew a circle around Antiochus in the ground and said, you can't go think about this. I'm not going to give you 24 hours. Before you leave the circle, you give the answer or you're going to be at war with us. Well, Antiochus was mad. He had to make a decision right now. Do I fight Rome? Well, he decided not to. And he left Egypt and he was going to head back to Syria. And in between him and Syria was the land of Israel, namely Jerusalem. And he went through and he took out his fury on the people of Israel. And so, people who had forsaken the Holy Covenant, uh, you could say Jews who had forsaken their commitment to God, he joined forces with them, and he desecrated the sanctuary, verse 31. He set up the abomination of desolation. He did away with the regular sacrifice in the temple. We have a bunch of detail from First and Second Maccabees where he was killing women and children, burning Torah scrolls, sacrificed a pig on the altar, spread, spread swine's blood uh, all over the place, desecrated the sanctuary, tried to force the high priest to eat pork, did all these terrible things, and during this time, thousands and thousands of Jewish people were killed. This wicked man is a shadow of a coming Antichrist. By smooth words, he will turn 32 godlessness, uh, turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God, what will they do? They will display strength and take action. And during this time, the Hasidians or the Hasmonean household led by a man named Judas Maccabeus through guerrilla warfare, I've told you about this in the past, rose up and they took on uh, Antiochus, and finally through guerrilla warfare they got him out of there. And they cleansed the temple, and the oil lasted longer than it should have, and that is the holiday that we know as Hanukkah in December. And so those who have insight among the people, remember this is predicted about 400 years before it happened, will give understanding to the many. Yet they, those who fought, will fall by sword, by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. It went on for a long time. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help. Many will join with them in hypocrisy or intrigue. Some join the revolution, but even they were phonies. And some of those who have insight will fall. Final verse. In order, and, and, and I want to park here because some of you are asking the logical question. Why? Why does God allow this to happen to his 
people to the apple of his eye. Why? Have you been asking the question, why, lately? Uh, I think you can admit it. We all do. It's easy not to until it's you. <laughs> and then it's something like this. Why? Can you say the next word? Why? Me. <laughs> you see, it's personal when it's me. I usually, I don't have a whole lot of whys when it's somebody else. Sometimes, right? But usually the why question is when it's followed by me. <laughs> and I think the Jews of this time had to be asking that. And it was in order to what? Refine, purge, make them pure until the end of time. Because it is still to come at the appointed time. Maybe from Daniel there was an implied why. Why do we have to suffer? Here's the answer. Because it's usually the only way God gets our attention. I say that with fear and trepidation. Because I never vote for personal suffering. I don't pray for it. If somebody else is saying, Lord, I'm getting too comfortable in a prayer circle, and they start praying for trials, I release their hand. I say, I will not say the amen to that. It's almost like if someone prays for the Red Sox, in a, if I'm in a circle, I say, no, I will not. <laughs> Even though I know things are going their way, apparently. You see, Israel is going to come through the fire. And they are going to call upon the name of the Lord. And they're going to be refined as silver is refined, tested as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, says God, and I will answer them. And they will say, I will say they are my people. And they will say the Lord is my God. Zechariah 13, 9. Why do we go through trials? Because we would know that the proof of our faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by the fire. And that it might be, result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I'm going to take you to Revelation and I promise I'm done. Revelation 3, all the way to the end of the Bible. And if you guys have a, if you want to come up for a closing song, Revelation 3, look at verse 18. Here's what Jesus says to his church. Revelation 3. To lukewarm Laodicea, verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire that you may become rich, white garments that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed in the eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, Revelation 3.20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, the Jewish people have been through so much. It's, you begin to look at statistics of uh, thousands of people perishing at different times in different uh, battles and different 
times when there was a, attempts to really exterminate them. We go all the way back to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, all the way through the Ottoman Empire. And we can think of even Christians during the uh, Crusades having wrath against Jewish people. We can think of, of course, the time of Nazi Germany and even today. Your people have gone through the fire. And here we have an insight and an answer, and even though I don't completely understand it, it's to purge and purify and refine a people for your own possession. Thank you that Jesus did that for us, Lord. Thank you that Jesus went through the fire. Thank you that he paid that price for me, that I could fellowship with you, I could be right with you. And even sometimes when we go through our trials, our fiery trials, Lord, we can know that you're using them to purify and refine and purge out the dross out of, out of our lives. When everything's going good, it's easy to go into cruise control. It's easy to just rest on our laurels or think we don't need you. But times of hardship, like no other, drive us to our God. I pray that that's not what we need, Lord. I pray that that's not what it takes. But you said if you withhold the rain, if you send pestilence, if you do discipline your people and your people who are called by your name, humble themselves and pray, if they seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, you will hear from heaven. You will forgive. You will heal. Lord, there is need for healing in this room tonight. There's need for healing for those who are going to listen to this at a later time. We need healing in our lives for our areas of brokenness, for our areas of pride, for the times that we are so self-reliant. So Lord, would you wonderfully do your work of shaping and molding, of chiseling, of even placing us in that refiner's fire, we might come out as pure gold. The Lord knows what you're facing tonight, and so I just want to ask you to take a few moments to seek his face. At the end of this service, just spend a little time asking for his grace and his mercy, which he is so, uh, he will so richly pour into your life as you need it. So just ask him to move in a special way into those areas of brokenness, into those gaps, into those areas of weakness and even pride for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.